for it was their world, not man's. However he might shape it for his own purposes, it would be his duty always to safeguard the interests of his rightful owners. No one could tell what part they might have to play in the history of the universe. And when, as was one day inevitable, man himself came to the notice of yet higher races, he might well be judged by his behavior here on Mars. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all humankind. Your hosts in England and Sweden. Matthew Russell and Limbolt Christmas. Oh yeah, baby. Arthur C. Clarke. Right, by, back by popular demand. We have Lynn. Lynn, welcome back Woo, to the podcast. Applause. Hello, thank you so much. I had so much fun. So I also shoehorned my way back in here, but I'm glad that it, the feeling was mutual. Yeah, well, I, I hope this is super regular. Me too. I've got a fancy microphone here now, so I might as well make the most of it, right? Exactly. Well, you've got the best, you've got the best <laughs> audio gear in town. You know, last episode, you mentioned what you asked me what microphone it was, and I very confidently stated the wrong name of the microphone. <laughs> and I don't now remember what it was, but it is a Sennheiser something. 441, I think. Yeah. Isn't it, isn't it got Elon Musk's it's name in like it? Yeah, it's got something in it. Yeah. It's, it's, um... Elon Musk gave it to me personally, actually, um, as a thank you for all my contributions to the world of space. No, nice. I, it, I, I'm not, I'm going <laughs> to yeah. brag here, but I did teach Elon Musk's wife, Grimes, how to uh, use her audio gear for live. I spent a couple of days with her. Did you actually? Yeah, no, I actually did, yeah. <laughs> and I'd completely oh, forgotten about it. I made it. mine up. <laughs> I, I didn't even I make mine, mine up. up so. <laughs> no, I I no, I genuinely it, did. Okay, it, you it, went. I, yeah, I but I'd forgotten about it until I was That's so cool. I was reminded, yeah. It was really weird. Someone said, I remember when you were teaching Grimes how to and I went, Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> so yeah, um, I, so this is the final final episode of our Mars Mars month because it's the last it's the last day of March when this comes out. So it's the last one, part five. Managed to get five episodes in one month. It was quite good. That is impressive. I must confess that I just in this very moment realised that that's why this is <laughs> all of <laughs> Mars. And you know what? In Swedish, it's actually called Mars, like we do call it Mars. So yeah, I did not put those two together. So it's actually, <laughs> so it's the Swedish for March is Mars. It's mush even, but I don't know if that's my disgusting Gothenburg accent butchering it. Maybe people in the North say Mars. I don't know, but it is spelled M-A-R-S. Well, here we are. We're, we're, we're still in Mars yeah. month. <laughs> um, yeah, still for now. Uh, we, we, we've got to do a couple of science things because we, we've kind of neglected yes. the science. So we're going to kick off Sadly. with why Mars is the way it is. Why is it like why that? Why is it all cold yeah. and horrible? Mars's uh, very distinct red color actually comes from um, the presence of iron oxides in the dust. So the dust is basically rusty. So if you th have ever thought, that's quite a rusty color planet, that's because it's literally covered in <laughs> rust. Um, and um, one of the properties of iron that most people know is that it's quite magnetic, right? Um, and the thing about Mars is that we... Well, first of all, actually, let's go back. So... Um, our solar system, most of the things in our solar system, all basically formed at the same time. Because what happens when a solar system forms is that you have a star in the middle um, that gets formed because you have this big cloud, right? And these clouds are in space. And then to really simplify this, I know someone's going to now be <laughs> pearl clutching, whatever the astronomical equivalent of pearl clutching is. So really simplified, you have a big cloud in space. This is how I tell it when I talk to like 10 year olds on Sky for yeah. Scientist. But you have a big cloud in space and then um, the middle of the cloud gets really quite hot. You know, if you have like 10 duvets on you and you feel like this is too many duvets and things get really hot. Well, basically the middle of the cloud gets really hot. And then it gets so hot that star formation is triggered. So what happens when stars form is that you just have these um, pockets inside interstellar clouds that um, reach a certain mass and pressure that triggers ignition. And then you start having fusion and then voila, you have a beautiful star. But then you still have this cloud left over, right? You didn't actually shake off that cloud. So you have a young star with a bunch of cloud around it still. And that cloud is still sort of gravitationally bound to the star in the middle, right? And then because the star that was formed in the middle 
has this sort of angular momentum, so it's like starts to spin, that cloud kind of gets <laughs> whipped in to the sort of dance that it's doing. And a bit like when you toss a pizza dough in the air and it flattens out, the cloud then starts to sort of go around um, the equator of the sun. And then you start having this sort of disc-shaped cloud around it. Kind of like you can picture Saturn's rings. And you sort of have the same thing that it's like the round thing in the middle and then around sort of the equator, you have this flattened thing. That's basically what a young solar system looks like. That's actually one of the best things about Saturn's rings, isn't it? Because we've learned loads yes. about solar system formation from from exactly. Saturn's rings because it's like a sort of yeah. in miniature version. It's ace, isn't it? Yeah, I, I love it. Yeah, a little terrarium. No, and that's the thing. And so you have these, and this is actually what I studied before I studied exoplanets. This was my, my topic, protoplanetary rings um, or protoplanetary disks, um, which is just like a cool sci-fi word to throw into conversation casually if you ever need PPDs. to. PPDs. Yes, exactly. So what happens is that you have this flat disk cloud, like a donut sort of, around a young star. Um, and in that cloud you start to get accretion. These, the, the, the cloud is made out of mostly hydrogen, but also um, rocks and ice and all this stuff. Um, and it's a big thing that we're looking into now. There's a, a lot of active research going on, like how this accretion sort of happens. Um, and what we do know is that you start to get these grooves in the disk. You can see if you look up, if you, right now, you're have my permission to pause this podcast to go on Google Images and type in protoplanetary disks, um, either with a C or a K. That's still for <laughs> people still argue about the spelling of disks. Um, and then you can see that a lot of these disks have gr literal grooves, like gaps in the disk where we think planet formation is happening. Um, but what that means is that you have all of the planets and asteroids and things, they all form out of the same leftover cloud disk. So they all kind of form around the same time. It wasn't like the sun was going, oh, Earth's pretty cute. I guess I'm going to make a smaller rusty version of it. It was like they were all kind of forming in tandem. So the age of the sun and the planets is also not that far apart because this all happens pretty quickly as well. And, and, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, that the cloud that it came from, this big massive dust cloud that started yeah. to spin round and, and, yeah. and, and become this disk, Yes. That was seeded by probably other stars that have blown up and put their elements ah. into it. So so yes. so it's not just this pristine material, it's material made already from nuclear furnaces all around the universe, right? Yeah. All around the galaxy, you I should say, really. <laughs> yeah, you literally just described my master's thesis because that was the exact topic that I did it on. <laughs> it was called the ablation of protoplanetary disks due to supernova remnants. And um, there's there are people actively researching um, what happens or, well, rather, so, yeah, like you said, you have this sort of mostly hydrogen cloud and then you get a star in the middle of it. Horribly simplified. I'm so sorry for anyone listening to this. Um, and then you get all of these rocky things or planetary things that form out of it. And then you're like, well, hold on. These things are way more chemically interesting than the cloud. Where did that come from? Um, so, yeah, one of the one of the big ideas is that um, you might have supernovas nearby that um, explode and projectile vomit a lot of metals into its neighbors, which could be us. Hello. Um, and one of the things that strengthens that idea is the fact that because you have stars live in cycles, they have generations. Um, you have stars that form and they grow up and then they die. And then they're uh, all the inner guts that it spilled out in the form of planetary or <laughs> interstellar dust is then drifting around and then those clouds become new stars. And so you do talk about, you know, the metallicity of um, of stars and of these clouds. So yeah, there could there could be some in the cloud itself, but not really enough. So one of the ideas is that you could be getting injection from nearby supernovas. And because stars form in clusters, like you don't get one cloud equals one star, you do have multiple stars forming in a region together. Uh, stellar nursery, I love mm. that phrase, it's so cute. Because larger stars live for less time, then they could be dying, die in uh, with such a timing 
that they could actually be exploding just as a new star is being formed. So then, yeah, there's some ideas about that. But um, anyway, Mars. <laughs> well, well, well yeah. okay. So <laughs> to so, summarize, yeah. Mars. So I think I know where you're going with this, right? So you're mm. so we've got this planetary disk, which is pretty much made for the same material. But my question to you right. is. Every time I make a pizza, because you've, you've made me think of pizzas now, but every time I make a pizza, the, the dough actually comes out slightly differently, each, even though I'm kind of following Correct. the same recipe. But the yeah. planets seem to be a lot more different than the variation in my pizza cooking. So so how on earth is, <laughs> why is true. Mercury so different to Venus, which is so different to Earth, which is so different to Mars? Really, why are Jupiter and Saturn and Neptune and Uranus and Pluto also different. And do, yeah. the com- and do the Kuiper Belt objects and the comets all come from this original protoplanetary disk? Yeah. They, so, so they all come from the same disk. Um, the structure of the disk is really complicated field. Um, this is something that's still being determined. In a nutshell, first of all, it's flared. So if you're imagining it as a donut, imagine you're squishing down the inner circle and then the outer circle is like more tall, <laughs> if yeah. that makes sense. It's a flare disk. The inner plane of the disk, the part that is like where the jam of the donut would be, so to speak, that part is very shielded compared to the rest of the disk. So the very, very inner plane of the disk is much colder than the outside because at the surface of the disk, you have all this delicious radiation being burst out from the young plant, uh, the young star, the young host star. Um, because again, remember, we're talking about a disk. This is a stage that happens very early on in the star's life. Uh, we only see protoplanetary disks around quite young stars. So young stars also tend to be very temperamental, like a teenager. They're hurling their UV radiation, saying, you're not my real mom and stuff like that. And um, what happens is that then the outside, like exposed part of the disk is way hotter because it's being radiated. So you have this like very hot ionized stuff happening at the outside skin of the disk. And then as you go further into the disk, first it gets kind of warm where it's sort of like molecular. You have a lot of interesting chemistry going on there. And then the very inner plane is where you have isis former. So there's a huge temperature difference as well from what happens at the outside of the disk and the inside of the disk. And so this accretion thing, it happens in the inside of the disk where it's shielded from all this scary radiation. Then you have to think about what happens as you move further away from the star. So the disk part that is closer to the star um, is also hotter than what is further out. In our solar system, the um, rocky planets like Mars and like Venus and like Earth, they are all closer to the sun than the gas giants like Jupiter and Saturn and Neptune and all of them. Um, so in our context, we, when we talk about planet formation in our solar system, we talk a lot about volatiles. So certain gases would maybe not survive at the temperatures that you find closer to the sun. Um, and, but rocks, as we know, survive pretty well in hot climates, Mm. read Mercury. (laughs) So, um, in our solar system, there's a correlation there. Well, okay. Well, well, I've got a question for you then. So you've, you've got, you've got the inner rocky planets and they've all formed. And of course it's, it's not, I guess it's not even that clear that they formed that close in or that they've swapped places and all those kind of crazy, crazy things that have gone on. But let's just assume, let's just assume (laughs) that say Venus, Earth and Mars were all yeah. pretty similar to start with, right? Yes. As in, you know, they're they're three sister planets almost. Yeah, um, maybe two sisters and a little younger brother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the little dumpling little brother. Dumpling brother. Who's like, oh, I guess he can come play football. But talking about <laughs> Venus is probably for another podcast because obviously oh, how, how Venus episode, ends up yeah. like Venus ends up is is obviously ludicrous. Yeah. but. Mars is obviously now ridiculously different to Earth. But I mean, yes. but people are always going on about how how it was more similar to, to, to Earth. So so what, what yeah. are the kind of really big shifts that have happened to make Mars drift away? Because I, mean, I mean, even as even as 
even Carl Sagan thought they might be vegetation on Mars. That's that's how much the science has changed. <laughs> that's that's an endorsement. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's like it, it, you know, in our lifetimes, the science of Mars has mm-hmm. well, certainly in my lifetime, that oh, the, the, the science of Mars has changed. You know, the thing that I've learned this month is that the Viking landers and all and and when we first saw that Mars was just a barren wasteland, actually took yeah. the the wind out of the sails of us wanting to go to Mars almost. It's a yeah. total it's a total desert world that's just useless. <laughs> but but I, I, I get the impression that people have started to think more and more about no, actually it's really exciting and it, there's something really exciting about it because it's highly likely that it was like Earth in the past. So yeah. that's what's exciting about it. Yeah. Mars has the our knowledge of Mars has, has like you said changed in even just like the last five or ten years. Um, now we are saying no, really, there was water on Mars once upon a time. Um, that wasn't something that we were saying with confidence that long ago. Um, and one of my favorite things to do when I talk to especially kids about space is to show them these pictures. Again, you have my second permission now. Go on Google Images and look up Mars riverbeds because there are these amazing pictures you can literally see. It looks like a dried up river on Earth. We know what water looks like and there was definitely something flowing. So the main thing that we think has changed with Mars, um, and this is very exciting because I actually found out that there was a new piece of research that came out like two weeks ago um, that shed new light on this. So let me first tell you what I would have said two (laughs) weeks ago, which is that... (laughs) Which is that um, one of the main uh, things that we have that protects us here on Earth is our beautiful magnetic field. It is like a bona fide Marvel-style force field that protects us, and we should be eternally grateful for it. Um, Quick GCC lesson, if you remember from when you were kids, you have uh, convection in the core of the Earth, We have a bunch of sort of liquid iron um, and we have a magnetic field that is generated um, from that. Do not ask me why, because I know even geologists are not 100% sure on this, (laughs) but we have a magnetic field and we're super grateful Uh, for it. Yeah, do you know what? I think it must be one of the most fascinating areas of science because (laughs) when when people start to describe what we know about... (laughs) The Earth's core now, and these giant, yeah. these giant iron <laughs> yeah. crystals that are spinning around in the corner. You go, what? Yeah. Giant what? And people are <laughs> and like, you go, yeah. and it's creating, yeah, and and we're just like, and it creates the magnetic field, but occasionally it swaps, and there's all these, you know, yeah, all the birds go <laughs> it mental. It creates a magnetic field until it doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, wh- why do they think that Mars yeah. is Mars is Presumably Mars had the same mechanism at one point. It had a molten core. So what we what we do know is that, like I said, um, there's a lot of iron on Mars. And like I said, iron is magnetic. And something that's so incredibly cool, actually, I remember hearing this as a child and being like, I want to study planets. Because um, one of the things they've, they've realized with Mars is that if you look at the minerals on the rocks there, you can actually see that there is alignment with what would have been old field lines. So we do know that Mars had a magnetic field. There's several reasons for it, but we have good evidence. There was at some point a magnetic field um, around Mars. Was it as strong as our as the Earth field? I don't know. Um, was it uh, similar in other ways? I don't know. But there was definitely something that protected um, Mars. And the way that the magnetic field protects Earth is because you have these solar flares from the sun. The sun may no longer be a young star, but it does still have temperamental flare-ups where it chucks out a bunch of radiation. And when you have these uh, solar flares or solar winds, um, you have highly charged particles that strike Earth. And um, our magnetic field usually is able to repel all of those, and they sort of cascade around us and they don't bother us. Um, because of how the magnetic field lines work, we do have some of those particles that get slide in, if you will, um, towards the poles, and then they uh, interact with our atmosphere and you get these beautiful lights called northern lights or southern lights. Um, and we look up at that and we're like, oh, that's well, so cute. Second. But instead it's like... <laughs> so yeah, do, do you get, are you able to see them from Sweden? Absolutely, yeah, we uh, get do, them here you, quite often. You, have you? So you've seen them? Do you actually? Is that like a sort yeah, of yeah, beautiful? Oh, so you, so you've grown up with them. 
It's like a sort of <laughs> well, boring actually, phenomena I, for you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, raining again. Some more aurora. No, actually, I haven't grown up with them because I was from in the south of Sweden. We don't see them so much, but in the north, um, very much so. Um, just beautiful, and and the different colors correspond to different um, different molecules in our atmosphere. It's kind of like the mechanism that makes neon signs light. It's like I'm again. I'm uh, simplifying it, but it's more or less the same because it is about excitation. Um, and we look up at that and we're like, oh, it's so beautiful. We're so, <laughs> how pretty is that? I'm going to take a picture for Instagram. But it's like, if that wasn't there, we would be uh, victims of horrible radiation from the sun all the time. So at some point, Mars had a magnetic field and now it doesn't. Um, and until recently, one of the leading ideas with that, and I guess it's still a, an idea, but asterisks, I'm coming to that. Um, one of the ideas is that when it lost its magnetic field, it no longer had that protection from radiation from the sun. And if you imagine that you have a uh, atmosphere, I mean, atmospheres are, are gaseous, so they're not very well connected. Like the only reason the atmosphere sticks to a planet is because of gravity, um, but it's not really tethered. So then um, this word ablation that I used earlier means when something is stripped away like this. So if you imagine that you have, um, if you if you are <laughs> licking a soft serve ice cream, you are ablating mm. that ice cream, basically. And so the solar flares were ablating um, the atmosphere. And um, one of the reasons for thinking that amongst other reasons was because Mars does have an atmosphere. It's just much thinner than Earth's, for instance. But there was a paper that came out recently that looked at maybe the water and the atmosphere didn't just ablate away. It could maybe have retreated into the crust itself. So maybe there is still some of that water, for instance, that is still in Mars, but sort of in the minerals. I'm not a geologist now, so mm. I'm now I'm going to just say that because I don't know the exact uh, chemical terminology for it. But that's something. This my my point is that this is something that's still ongoing. We're literally like in 2021, still trying to figure out ideas about it. The the bit that I don't understand is once you lose your magnetic field, what then stops mm. the solar wind? from just continually stripping off the atmosphere until there's nothing left. Well, that's basically what it's been but, doing. But, but Mars has got some atmosphere, as in you can still yeah, slow but, us. But for I how know. long? Yeah, well, that, well that's <laughs> it. So uh, is it is it actually depleting all the time? Is the atmosphere actually going? Are, are we going to eventually, in, say, a billion years, is Mars going to have no atmosphere? I'm sure someone has run the numbers on that. Ablation from radiation is an ongoing problem. For, for everyone. And the fact that we have our magnetic field, we're very grateful uh, because it's not such a big yeah, problem. Yeah, because I'm, I'm just trying to think um, if there's any sort of geological processes that, that replenish the atmosphere. Presumably the atmosphere came from somewhere in the first place. Well, exactly. This is also why, why it's such a big question when we look. The reason we want to study exoplanetary atmospheres, for instance, is to figure out what is the spectrum of atmospheres in the universe because then that can give us insight to where atmospheres like Earth's or Mars's, where that ranks. Um, and there's so many cool things that can affect an atmosphere. There are also ideas about how atmospheres can be replenished and stuff, but it's all really baby science right now. It's something that has been studied in earnest, like in the last 10-ish years. So <laughs> stay tuned. It's really fascinating, actually, because the one thing that the phosphine debacle oh, yeah. made you realise <laughs> is even with our closest neighbour, with a great big thick yeah. atmosphere, we still don't really know much about it. <laughs> and it's just like, so, you, <laughs> yeah. it, and that's our nearest neighbour. So like looking at exoplanets and things like that. And I love that idea of, mm -hmm. of, of ranking where Earth, Venus, and Mars are in, in the in the atmosphere, <laughs> yeah. you know, in the charts of the atmosphere. Because yeah. it could yeah. be, yeah, that Earth is just super freaky. It's a super freaky atmosphere. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we... It, there, and there's also so many factors. Like, if aliens looked at Earth, they would be like, yeah, nitrogen, oxygen, roughly 20, 15 degrees. I mean, that doesn't tell the whole story. Think of all the different climates that we see on Earth and like all the variation from places to places. Like you can travel tens of kilometers and have a totally different weather pattern. So the fact that we're looking at entire planets and we're like, 
yeah, it's basically 25 Kelvin. It's like, what? I, well, it's a Kelvin. bit like, it's a bit so, like so uh, watching an episode of David Attenborough's Life on Earth and think and thinking that you've seen <laughs> yeah. all life on Earth because in a way you go, it, it yeah. can't be more diverse than that, right? And then obviously he's, yeah. he's, he's had a lifetime of those programs and he's probably mm-hmm. only, well, he has only scratched the surface of life on Earth on earth and you think wouldn't it be amazing if we found another planet which had life on it and just how long it would take you to explore it let's just bin off space let's just go exploring on earth (laughs) well yeah i mean (laughs) but there's certainly (laughs) there's certainly plenty of exploring to do i mean you were sort of talking about rusty the whole planet being rusty is there is there places Mm. on earth that are rusty yeah i think so i i mean so so colors um basically just come from different kinds of crystals um i mean snow is technically a crystal um it's a water crystal so there's such a huge i actually nearly studied geology at university because i just love a good rock (laughs) and a good bit of sand (laughs) and all of these beautiful colors it's all just like different brands of copper and iron and stuff like that if if we've heard of it it probably exists somewhere on earth (laughs) Actually, Britain's quite a good place to live for a bit for geology as well. There's yeah. a lot going on, Partic- particularly Devon. I, I go, ra- I walk around here, and the and the yeah, rocks are yeah. amazing. <laughs> yeah. But the because um, uh, we probably should start shifting this towards towards um, the second part of this, which is which is sample return. Because presumably, there's only yes. so much science that we can do from here and with robots that mm. tell us the story about. Mars and how it how it yeah. how it lost its atmosphere. You know what's the what's the full story of it? Mm-hmm. How it, you know what's the sort of state of its atmosphere? What's the you know what's the full state of 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 things like that? And all these mysterious methane events that happen and all you know all those kind of things. And yeah. really, the, I guess the big news ever since Perseverance landed is that really that's the start. Perseverance is the start of this idea of sample return. And I guess yeah. But before we get onto that, do you know the answer about whether sample return could say look at things like magnetic fields as in are these core samples are they detailed enough to reveal things like the history of magnetic fields, do you know? Or would you have to dig deeper? Uh, they well, they would definitely give a good start. Um so the science that is able to be done with the robots on there, like they have these cool little stomachs that has all these cool science experiments that they do. Um, and I mean, really, we're like sniffing rocks, scratching rocks, tasting rocks, just doing whatever we can to the rocks. Um, but of course, there's a limited capacity in what the robot can do because it's a, a lab on wheels. Um, so the benefit of having an actual sample return is that we can do so many more things and um, because we can actually take, you know, cut it into pieces and then do multiple things with it. Um, as you know, launching things is a pretty expensive affair. So you're really never going to be launching uh, a rover with uh, more than more than absolutely necessary. So the kind of experiments that you're able to do with the soil samples that we get from there are very bare bones um, and they've been a fantastic insight, but there's so much more we can do on, on labs on earth. Um, so, so honestly, even small samples would be, would be such a massive yeah, step. Because we get, I mean, we do get natural samples, don't we? Like things like rocks that have come off yeah. Mars that have ended, ended up hitting the earth. And we, we occasionally find <laughs> yeah. the odd Martian meteorite on earth. Yeah. But this is more like going to a restaurant instead of finding a hot dog in a yeah, garbage exactly. bin. So it's like <laughs> Exactly. So like, so obviously this has been on the cards, hasn't it, for a long time now, this idea of sample return. Yeah. And I thought Oh, fantasy. I was reading about this and I didn't realize mm. how fa- how far the kind of plans had got the time before cuz NASA and ESA had been in talks before in in 2006. There was the International yeah. Mars Architecture for the Return of Samples, or IMARS, the cleverly, the clever, Ooh, clever hey. a- acronym. <laughs> I don't know whether I, they're like the kids like yeah, iPods. They're, they're like, like IMARS, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah but that's that's before the iPod, isn't it? Two thousand six. Oh, oh wow. maybe or just about. So maybe NASA, you know, 
Maybe Steve Jobs was on that committee. <laughs> so, and they basically <laughs> said that, yeah, we, we, should, we should go and do this in the 2018 to 2023 timeframe. So we would be sort of in the middle of that program now. Right. Um, but basically, uh, the uh, NASA withdrew from ExoMars uh, be uh, because of funding issues. Boo. Yeah, And I think it's mainly because James Webb was costing so much, I think. Oh, my God. James <laughs> <laughs> An absolute albatross around well, our necks. I love James. Well, yeah, I mean. <laughs> I mean, I love this telescope, so I'm not going to badmouth no, it. No, well, well. I just wanted exactly. to happen. And well, it's of course the most stressful event at the end of the year, isn't it? Particularly for I, I can feel my yeah, heartbeat, my heart rate going up I, as I, we speak. I, I, I feel especially sorry for Julio, <laughs> <laughs> who who has to yeah. write the letters if it all goes wrong. Oh God! <laughs> but, I hope I hope yeah, he's ready. So, but the no, it won't happen. Yeah, as a, it's okay. as, a it's okay. Euro, as a European, I feel really responsible for the launch of. I don't know why. I, I'm taking the whole responsibility on my shoulders. Oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so, so they cancelled it. So it, the whole thing was cancelled. Apparently, pretty traumatic for the whole science community. A lot of development had gone in. Um, there was this caching rover called Max C, and all these kind of things, and mm. so that got basically got binned damn it you know because because you can see that a sample return would just be monumental oh my like, god I've, yeah. I've heard it described as this the science is is so big that it can change civilization it's, yeah yeah monumental, it's, it's monumental. monumental. So, absolutely uh yeah so they've 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 started again they've started again so 2018 is the start yeah. of it so nasa and Christ. isa signed a letter of intent uh, and by July 2019, they'd kind of proposed some architecture to return samples to Earth by 2031. So a decade away. Oh. I know it's... Oh, my <laughs> heart. We were told it was going to be now. Exactly. Well, I know. Oh. I know. So Come on. It's put, it back, it's put yeah. it back 10 years, really, hasn't it? So 2031. Yeah. In April 2020 was the updated version of all this. And November yeah. 2020... NASA released this thing called the MSR, the Mars Sample Return Independent Review Board, or the IRB, basically gave it the green light and said, you know, th this actually yeah. looks like NASA and ESA are ready. Th this is really doable. And I guess they must have done that before. And it was like, we weren't even close to being able to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, come on. Yeah. Really? <laughs> and, but I think with the success of Curiosity's landing and the fact that Mm -hmm. Now that's a way of getting stuff that big onto the surface. And now NASA have done yeah. it twice as well, the sky crane and don't they've right. done it twice. So they don't this this new thing, they don't have to redevelop any way of getting hardware onto the surface of Mars. So that seems to be the breakthrough. Yeah, you know, that's exactly what I was going to say. And as someone who has been on both sides of um, enthusiastic civilian science dork who just really wants to see the missions push through, and also having worked in the field, and it's never as easy as it reads in a headline. <laughs> I mean, people are like, oh, if there was a budget problem, just cut this other thing. But it's like, it's never something straightforward. Um, and... The good thing about our industry is that you are never truly starting from scratch. Even if something gets far and gets cut, that doesn't mean that you've lost that work because when you have opportunities down the line to, to recreate or turn that into something else, you are building on that foundation. Um, so I'm sure they're not starting from nothing. <laughs> <Yeah>. Like, <laughs> you know... Um, it's sad that it, it, it got delayed, but you know what? They just weren't ready, and that's okay. And we're here to support you, NASA. If you need yeah, a call, well, just have a chat. You know, it's, I mean, <laughs> I'll hold your hand. I mean, it is, it's super <laughs> exciting. That this, it makes you realise how difficult this thing is, because the, the guy, one of the, one of the, yeah. one of the people hard. on the review board, David Thompson, gave 44 recommendations to address potential areas of, you know, potential areas of concern. And, and <laughs> that that's translation uh, is uh, massive, massive. Yeah, these issues. are massive issues, and and they're always yeah. surprising. And that things like the, the management 
you know, how do you manage a project like that when, when you've got mm-hmm. the Europeans and you've got the Americans and you need to be able to talk to each other? You know, you've got the Italians doing some bit, the British doing some bit, the Germans doing another bit. The, yes. And, and it's like, yes, these, these are like just as a management, as a, as a project management thing. It's like It's very ambitious, but technically it's ambitious and funding wise, it's obviously mega ambitious because... Because when we describe this mission, you'll you'll realise just how difficult it is. So I, I wanted to do a quote by David Thompson, and it goes like this. The MSR campaign is a highly ambitious, technically demanding, <laughs> and multifaceted planetary exploration programme with extraordinary scientific potential for world-changing discoveries. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, yeah. Brilliant I, item, it, yeah, by the well, way. It's... <laughs> So, you know, it's big. It's basically saying this is going to be insanely difficult, but the payoff is so big. It's It's got to be worth it. Yeah, subtitles is, guys, yeah. come on. <laughs> come on, come we on. Gotta, let's do this. <laughs> come on. It would be so oh cool. Oh, my God. That's, that's the thing. And something I love about, about scientists and people who work in this field as well is that, like, you can always just count on people to geek out so hard (laughs) and it doesn't really matter what it is. And it's like, if you keep pushing it, people will give these very eloquent, um, um, insightful replies about motivation beyond for, you know, scientific objectives and stuff. But if you keep pushing it, it's like, it would just be really cool and I want to do it and it would be really cool. Yeah, I mean... (laughs) What's incredible is that we'll get the samples back in in 2031. And that's if everything goes to plan. And you know what space missions are like. Yeah. So that's And then 25. there's people thinking that we're going to have <laughs> humans on Mars before the 2030s. Just not going to happen, is it? Well, no. <laughs> I mean, let's be... Honestly, well... And that's another cool thing about, so this, that's another relevant point about the magnetic field. Um, when I, I, cause I do a lot of outreach, I talk a lot to kids and one of the really common things, I guess they've been watching a lot of uh, Elon Musk interviews. They ask like, when are we going to move to another planet kind of thing? And I always love to burst their <laughs> bubble by explaining exactly in all the ways in which that's really difficult. <laughs> But one of the one of the things, you know, magnetic fields is a big thing. Like if you're going to uh, live on a planet, how are you going to deal with intermittent, horrible radiation? Um, you have to think about gravity. That's something that you can't just tinker with. Like if you want to be on a planet that has crushing surface gravity, that's not going to be fun. There's just like beyond just the logistic nightmare that comes with that. There's also so many problems with the planet itself. And I mean, Mars is it's better than Venus, but not by much <laughs> to live on. <laughs> yeah. It's like still not good. I mean, plan A should really be fix climate change on Earth, please. Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, uh, absolutely. I, but uh, thankfully, it's not, a, it's not an either or question, is it? I yeah, mean, exactly. What, what, and I actually exactly. do think that there is, you know, that discovery of Venus's climate and Mars's climate is like, hey, Look, when you're in the solar system, your your uh, your climate yeah. can radically change. By the way, and 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 for oh, and yes. it's doomed. <laughs> so I, I so <laughs> <laughs> and then that's it. <laughs> but um, yeah, I the I mean, it's the, what's brilliant about this plan is you can kind of see it starting to come to, come together. You can you can see how they're going to yeah. do it. But you mentioned the gravity and what and and the kind of conditions on mars and and the, one of the hardest bits of this of this well let's get to it so you've got perseverance that's on the surface now and mm-hmm. and it's and it's different to curiosity in the fact that it can drill and core and put them in these pristine and i say pristine uh, like caching tubes right they are apparently <laughs> yeah they are the cleanest things that have ever been sent beautiful beautiful yeah so these are that that's it they're the cleanest thing ever because they can't be contaminated because you can imagine how irritating it would be if you got (laughs) yeah guys there's a piece of moss on mars oh Oh, wait there's tardigrades on mars (laughs) no i think they just might have just (laughs) there's a hot dog in here (laughs) (laughs) i think they hopefully they've cleaned it better than than uh than than hot dog (laughs) sized material but yeah it's the cleanest (laughs) hardware ever sent to space and 
it's mm. there. You know that that is there. So it's there's three there's kind of three parts to this, and we've already got the first part yeah. done, and that's getting perseverance on the land. Check tick. Second yeah. part, which apparently is to launch in July 2026, is the Mars Ascent vehicle, which will be developed by NASA, and on board of on board of that will be a sample collection rover built by ESA, which I believe is Airbus, isn't it? That's going that, that's developing that. I think so. I uh, think which so. of course they've built the the Exo Mars rover, the the Franklin, the Rosalind yeah. Franklin. So that lands near. Yeah. That lands actually near Mars 2020 because it's 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 going to follow basically follow its tracks yeah. <laughs> and pick up pick up all Hello. the little <laughs> yeah, for me. pick up all the little sample tubes that it's dropped and actually Perseverance yeah. apparently if it's still running by then uh, which is mm. which is kind of like 2028 by the time this thing has landed and yeah. started to but yeah. I mean. old rovers oh have, yeah have so lasted. I think it will be still running by then yeah yeah totally yeah, absolutely feasible. feasible. Like disaster yeah, aside, so, so it will help actually. So it 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 too might actually yeah. go around picking up its old canisters, bringing them Aww. back to the Mars to the Mars Ascent rocket, which basically the lander has this yeah. rocket on board. So cool. And this is th I think this is probably must be the hardest bit, mustn't it? Launching yeah. a rocket. I think so. From another planet. Launching a rocket is yeah, quite full stop. But launching a rocket <laughs> like, that's landed that's landed on the ground and then launching oh it from another planet with with different gravity. So it's not like this thing can be tested yeah. particularly easily. No. And it's so many moving parts. Like I can hear the Wallace and Gromit music in my head in the background. <laughs> like there's just gonna be so many things that could go so many points of failure or potential points yeah, of so, failure but this is um, my favorite bit is so that so that this two-stage rocket it's not just like a sort of like a thing mm -hmm, that spits no. it out this is a, <laughs> a, little, a, a quite a big two-stage rocket that carries the yeah. canister up into mars orbit Holy moly. Now, hopefully that gets into mars mm -hmm. orbit by 2029 so it's 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 there it's this yeah. tiny little metal ball with all the canisters yeah. in is is in orbit around the most yeah precious cargo <laughs> super precious cargo is in orbit around Mars. Oh my Mars. gosh! But mm. a, a few years before, three years before, an Ariane six booster will have hopefully have launched an Earth return mm. orbiter. So, so ESA have built right. that, and that's going to go into that's going to by the time the canister's in orbit, hopefully the Earth return orbiter <laughs> has arrived at Mars a couple of years before and slowly lowers its orbit using ion thrusters. Yeah. So by the time yeah. it gets to 2029, in fact, it's going to get it's going to get into the right place before the canister's launched. But hopefully yeah. there'll be enough time that it can go round and find this metal canister and pick it up yeah. and then... And then yeah. By 2031, come back on that transfer window back to Earth, and then it's going to spit oh it out. It's going to go yeah. enter, re-enter Earth, and land yeah. on Earth in 2031, and then smash in a million pieces no, right at the last we'll second. Get right? this, we'll get this. So the <laughs> the the um, there's a couple of things that that are really interesting about that. That because of this need for planetary protection. Even mm. if, like the, the the heat shield of the canister, they're going to use to they're going to make it so strong that even if it was to just smash into the ground at terminal velocity, mm -hmm. it wouldn't break open. Oh, so it would like obviously. Okay. I'm okay. <laughs> this it would be hor obviously it'd be a, horrible. It'd be a but... massive mess, <laughs> but it mm. wouldn't release the samples out into the wild because, of course, there is actually a, a, a tiny... And I think it's a tiny risk, but there are there are some people that... Are, I, I hadn't realised that there is the International Committee Against Mars Sample Return, or the ICAMSR. Yeah. What? <laughs> so this is... this is Excuse yeah. me? <laughs> this is led by Barry <laughs> Di, Di Gregorio. He's a bit of a crank, actually, right. Di Gregorio, by the looks of things. Barry he's, the crank. He's, um, he believes in the conspiracy theory that NASA are covering up um, that they discovered microbial life on the Viking um, landers. That old chestnut. But he, yeah. yes, so he's he runs this 
this uh, the international committee against Mars sample return, saying that um, he's not against sample return, but he's saying that that we haven't done enough when it comes to the biohazard of this stuff coming back. What's the worst? What's the worst that can happen? We have a pandemic. Come on. <laughs> well, yes. No. Come on. Uh, well, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, talking of cranks, but probably a more famous one, yeah. Robert Zubrin, of course argues that that pretty much the, the chance of contamination is is functionally zero Be, because even I, right yeah I even would if agree. you had bacteria or viruses in the martian soil because they they have a different origin they almost certainly yeah. wouldn't interact with the human body or, or life on well, earth first of all first of all ding dong jackpot we found freaking <laughs> microbial life i'll take that hazard and second of all, yeah, I mean, if if you want a contamination to happen anywhere, surely it should be on, in the hands of the scientists who are paying a lot of attention to what the thing they're looking at is. Yeah, I mean, well, <laughs> well, they're going to build. I think they would notice pretty quickly and pretty much quarantine that well, immediately. Well, yeah, well, NASA are building a biosafety level four containment facility called the MSRRF, the Mars Sample Return Receiving Facility. Such yeah, catchy it's acronyms. A rubbish. That's actually they must be able to make Mars out of that somewhere. But it's it's Musurur, yeah, exactly. which is pretty annoying. So yeah, that, that I, I thought that was really interesting. That that yes, this thing could the the the, the actual capsule could re-enter, smash into the ground, and still actually be all right. That's really yeah, cool. I so, didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> I mean, I wonder. I mean that. So that's one hazard reduced. <laughs> Only eight thousand more yeah. to go. Well, there's four. Well, we know there's at least forty-four areas of concern. <laughs> yeah. which, which is yeah, good. Exactly. But yeah, I think you know, yeah. it's um, there is a sort of second element to this that's very cool that we probably should really mention, and that's the fact that if you're able to do this architecture of getting something onto the ground, mm. getting it back and getting it back to earth, of course, the lessons learned mm -hmm. there do help with thinking about doing the same with humans. Oh, absolutely. We, in space, you're never really starting from scratch. You're always building on previous knowledge. Um, and um, everything in human space exploration so far has been building blocks of going from empty vessels to monkeys and dogs and cats and humans. And this would absolutely just be one of those stepping yeah, stones. Yeah, although saying that, one interesting thing that came out of our interview with Gary Martin was that he mentioned that hmm. um, he he was the NASA architect at the time, the one and only, the first and only NASA architect. And he, he was against the sky crane. Oh, really? Because it could never be used for human landing. Huh. And so the lessons you're learning there aren't particularly useful further down the line. Mm. They're great for getting one-ton objects on the floor, but not 30-ton objects. I see that logic. Yeah, no, yeah. I thought it was really interesting. I, I thought, thought you know, after, after watching Perseverance land and going, oh, it's the most amazing thing ever, and then actually hearing that someone... Was like, I hate it! You know, <laughs> get rid of it! <laughs> of note going, yeah, I tried yeah, to get rid of the stupid. thing. It's rubbish. <laughs> no, I mean, he obviously <laughs> yeah, was saying yeah, how yeah. amazing it was, but but it, I, but it was... But the fact was, it, it was, yeah, it was... He was against it at the time because it didn't it didn't help with the overall architecture. Yeah, of and that is interesting. On, I mean, that that. that that is kind of the the mindset you have to be in 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 space projects for sure. That's long term uh, thinking. Outside the box, really? beyond the horizon. Speaking of project management in the space industry, if any of our listeners are young professionals in the space industry, uh, so under the age of thirty five and working at one of the IAS or one of the IAF affiliated organizations. Uh, there is actually a young professionals workshop that is currently open for applications where you would be um, put in a workshop with fellow young professionals and talk about project management and do a workshop on that with myself as well. So, you know, I don't know if that's if that's a selling point. There's so many reasons why I can't go. I'm not affiliated <laughs> with the IAF. And, and I'm definitely not under 35. God damn it. But I know there's a lot of people out there that are. And that's where you met I have met Harriet. Harriet. Yes, both me and Harriet are alumni of that. Uh, so if you're curious, you can look up. Um, are you ready for this very catchy acronym? The IAFIPMCYP workshop. 
Yep. Speaking of acronyms. <laughs> and, and, and just think, you know, once you've done it, you, you might have the chance of one day being a host <gasps> on the Interplanetary that Podcast. That is where you're recruiting hosts, right? <laughs> That's as good as it gets in the space industry. <laughs> I think industry. so. Apart from being an astronaut on your way oh to Oh my God, Mars. I would hate to be an astronaut. Can I just tell you? I do not want to be an astronaut. If anybody wants to encourage me to be an astronaut, throw yourself <laughs> against the wall. I don't want to do it. Please leave me alone. I like my bed. I like my life. I don't want to go to space. And it, it breaks my heart. I have little kids ask me this sometimes and they're like, do you want to go to space? And I'm like, no, <laughs> that's for brave kids and I'm not one. <laughs> I think I could get over all the kind of discomfort just for the just for the just view. for the bragging rights. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah and for the bragging, bragging rights. rights. I mean, let's face it. Yeah, going into space is so. Would you would you sign cool. up on a one way trip? A one way trip to yeah. Mars. If I was a little bit older, yeah, guaranteed think- name in the iron oxide stone engraving, like uh, well, if, certified. If cer- do you know? I think I'd certainly do it. If it if it was the first trip there. Yeah. Well, because you are then immortalized. Forever. It's like, yeah. I, I always think that Neil Armstrong and Yuri Gagarin, for example, mm-hmm. will, will always be famous because you can never take that achievement away. You right. Know? You can you never. Can, that, that's it. You, it. you can never be the first anymore. <laughs> it's never right? irrelevant. So they're potentially famous for the rest of humanity. Yeah. Even if we were this multi-planetary species. Mm-hmm. The name Armstrong and the name Gagarin would come up. That's true. It, do you know what? I'm telling you what's exciting. It's the 60th anniversary of Yuri <gasps> yes, Gagarin coming up. Yes, that's true. Soon. That's true. Well, thanks very much for joining me again, Lynn. Thank you Back so much. Back by popular demand. Woo! And, and rightly so. And now they're going to be like, never invite her ever again. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> I gave her a second chance. She yeah. still blew it. <laughs> right. That's, that's all right. so. Uh, yeah. So if if you liked the if you liked the uh, the episode or liked any episode, you can go to interplanetary.org.uk, see the show notes and link out to all our social media. I mainly do Twitter these days. My Instagram's gone a little bit off the boil because I'm just too busy. I'm the worst. To do with pictures. <laughs> I'm the worst millennial <laughs> ever. I have nothing like that. I just have Twitter because I can look myself in the eye and be like, it's okay. It's for networking, not procrastinating. Brackets, it's for procrastinating. <laughs> so... Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, my social media just is the unbelievable waste of time that I, can't, I, I literally can't afford to do right now. And if you've enjoyed it, especially loads, you can go to patreon.com forward slash interplanetary. That's it. Yay! Bye bye, Spongebob. <laughs>